time is ticking, whether it is policymakers in the public sector or decision makers in the private sector, urgent action has never been more critical. The latest report by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a cold red for humanity. Sadly, the repeatedly ignored warnings by scientists over the past decades have now become reality. As a global real estate company headquartered in Singapore, CDL is glad to have started our sustainability journey over two decades ago. Since uh, 1995, we have embodied our ethos of conserving as we construct, and we believe that businesses can play a key role to building a sustainable future. Green buildings have been a top priority in the way we design, build, and manage our properties. Over the years, our sustainability strategy aims to achieve three deliverables, decarbonization, digitalization and innovation, as well as the disclosure of ESG performance. This is in line with our mission to provide green, safe and healthy spaces for building users. This long-standing commitment has paved the way for the transformation of CDL's operations towards a low carbon future. In February this year, CDL became the first real estate developer in Singapore and the first real estate conglomerate in Southeast Asia to sign on to this World Green Building Council's Net Zero Carbon Buildings Commitment. Going forward, CDL will further accelerate our climate action to ensure that our business is not only doing good for all stakeholders and the environment today, but also contributing to a more resilient world where generations to come will enjoy, prosper, and live with good health. The development of climate change solutions is an ongoing and collective effort across multiple levels and there are many opportunities for Singapore to be engaged actively. At the institution level, Republic Polytechnic's efforts are aligned with the national focus on sustainable development to mitigate all the risks and threats brought about by climate change. Our campus has been recertified as a Green Mark Platinum Award in 2021 and there are various efforts to reduce energy consumption in our campus through the retrofitting of our chiller plant conversion of AC fans to electronically commuted fans, the installation of solar panels in nine building rooftops, as well as the changing of lighting type to LED. In supporting the mass rollout of electric vehicles in Singapore, we have also worked closely with various industry partners to develop training programs to support the manpower and skills requirements, as well as the charging infrastructure. Over at RP, we roll out on-campus initiatives to encourage all our staff and students to play their part through recycling of used items and reduction in energy and water consumption. These efforts are championed by our students from the Conservation Interest Group to positively influence our students and staff. Climate change is affecting everybody because it is not just a national issue but a global challenge. Everyone has a role to play and we can all start by adopting a positive mindset that we can do our part, regardless of how big or small the effort is.
Welcome to this sixth virtual forum session at the Singapore Perspectives Conference 2022. My name is Christopher Gee, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. Before we start, may I quickly remind everyone of the following administrative matters. Please submit your questions for the panelists via the question submission section on this forum page. You can do this at any time during the session. The session is open to media coverage. We invite all at our conference to contribute to our discussions in a respectful and safe manner, focused on the issues at hand. IPS reserves the right to ensure that this is always the case in the chat and Q&A functions on our conference site. Now onto the matters at hand for this forum session. We have heard from the sessions earlier today about how the city, this global city state called Singapore, can be a connected and connecting space a vibrant and dynamic economic space. And later today, we will have another session on what makes a fully digitally capable city. Last week, inclusivity, cosmopolitanism, and resilience were all discussed in sessions involving a range of distinguished speakers. Now we turn our attention to the city as a green space. This, this hyper-urban, densely populated, 740 square kilometers of space that has been known as a garden city ever since the concept was first introduced by the then Prime Minister, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew in May, 1967, with the idea that Singapore should be a city with abundant greenery and a clean environment for the benefit of citizens. And he also announced an ambitious timeline of just three years to achieve that goal. Now, more than 50 years on, there's still remarkably quite a lot of green physical space and indeed, the planting of trees is one part of the Singapore Green Plan 2030 announced just under a year ago. But the environmental challenges that confront citizens today are very different. They go well beyond just planting and growing trees. And the question that can perhaps be implied in the title to this session is, can this city, this global city, act as a green space, not just in its territorial limits, not simply an oasis protected from a scary world outside, but something more, extending beyond the city limits to having a positive multiplier effect on its ASEAN hinterland and beyond. This is quite a challenging goal to consider this question in the 90 minutes that we have for this session. But I'm pleased to say that we have two eminent urban environmental scientists here with us to help talk through the matter. May I then introduce our two speakers, Dr. Olivia Jensen and Dr. Harvey Neo. Olivia is lead scientist working on environment and climate issues at the Lloyd's Register Foundation Institute for the Public Understanding of Risk at NUS. She specializes in water and environmental policy in urban Asia, looking at the landscape of environmental risks and designing and evaluating policy interventions to strengthen the resilience of urban communities. She was previously a senior research fellow at the Institute of Water Policy here within the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Avi, is Senior Fellow at the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities, Singapore University of Technology and Design, SUTD. And his research focuses on critical urban studies, citizen urban science and policymaking, as well as nature society interactions. At the center, he leads the city's cluster research on the future of Asian cities, considering how a citizen-centric urban science can be practiced and sustained in tandem with big data and in so doing, how it can influence urban policies positively. Olivia and Harvey will each make some points for about 15 minutes each before we move on to what I hope will be an open and purposeful discussion with all of you 
on this concept of city as a green space. Olivia, would you like to start us off, please? Thank you very much, Christopher. And um, much as I'm, I'm sorry not to have a chance to be in the room together with you and, and Harvey and, and with our audience, I'm looking out on one of Singapore's many lovely green spaces uh, right now, so I, I shan't complain too much. Let me start with uh, a few thoughts about where the city fits in, in terms of discussions about sustainability and also resilience. Resilience um, in that more focused sense of being resilient to climate shocks and environmental shocks. And how can the city withstand, uh, withstand these and bounce back? But on the one hand, cities are clearly part of the solution. Their, their size and their density means that they generate uh, economies of scale in the classical sense that um, achieving these services, delivering these services is cheaper per capita when people are and assets are densely packed. And of course the abundance of skills within a city um, and thriving innovation systems is also likely to lead to the generation of, of more solutions, more ideas. And that, concentration of, of people and, and assets also justifies investing in, in resilience. Thinking about uh, coastal defense provides us with, with one example. On the other hand, of, of course, that concentration of, of population and of productive assets amplifies the risks from, from pollution, from climate change, from unsustainable resource use, from biodiversity loss. And cities um, inevitably draw on the resources of their hinterlands. They put pressure on their regional environment. Um, they may be in, in competition, sometimes direct competition for scarce resources uh, like land and water. The way that land is used, uh, whether to say produce food or to provide a, a space for extra residential development. And cities and their hinterlands have to find ways to share these resources. Cities also depend on their hinterlands for a disposal of, of waste. Um, in the water sector, that often means that the uh, regions and localities which are downstream on the river. In Singapore's case, um, that means the coast um, and the ocean. So what impact does, uh, does the city have on its environment, um, you know, beyond its borders and even beyond the land itself? And very often, uh, the hinterland of a city is in a different administrative jurisdiction. Um, often that's a different province or uh, a different state, so a different subnational government. In Singapore's case, of course, it means an international border. So Singapore is, has the additional challenge then of, of, of conceiving and interacting with uh, its, its, its neighbors, uh, neighboring states in order to achieve uh, sustainability goals. I mean, this is gonna involve coordination, hopefully cooperation um, with its neighbors. In terms of, of cities as the solution then, I mean, there are many, many excellent examples from, from Singapore and from, from other leading cities, cities at the forefront of, of sustainability and climate action in terms of what can be achieved. Um, and the greatest achievements uh, are related, I think, to sound governance and to joined up policymaking. 
think of a, a few examples of drawing a lot on, on Singapore's uh, efforts and experience. I mean, one possibility is to link up kind of the energy system with public housing. Um, in Singapore, that takes the form of installing solar panels on, on HDB roofs and of designing new housing developments around sustainability goals. There's potential to join up uh, solid waste management with wastewater management and to couple that together with energy generation. And that's exactly what's being um, conceived and built at the Tuas Nexus plant at the moment. That's going to be entirely energy self-sufficient. There's also potential to coordinate between you know, transport policy and green space management. So we've got, on the one hand, on the transport side, efforts to limit vehicle numbers, to improve access to public transport, and to stimulate you know, zero carbon mobility, cycling, walking, and to link that up with um, efforts around parks, park connectors and, and greenways so that people can use those not just for recreation but as a way of getting about the city to their places of uh, work. So taking action across sectors is always challenging um, from a policy design and an implementation point of view but it's much more feasible and more likely to happen at the level of the city where in any cases, policymakers from different sectors can meet each other physically um, and can see each other's work in the same space. All these initiatives um, can offer very important co-benefits as well, uh, as we well know, in terms of uh, livability, uh, improved air quality, um, you know, physical fitness, if we go back to the walking and cycling example. And of course, you know, reducing carbon emissions is not the only policy goal, nor should it be. And so sometimes we can think of it the other way around. Um, are policies that are actually driving and improving public health, quality of life, or economic prosperity, can those be the driver? And can they then generate co-benefits uh, for the environment? Into this kind of intersector uh, policy planning and implementation is one of Singapore's outstanding strengths. Um, as you said in the introduction, my specialization has uh, been a lot on the, on the water sector. And, and Singapore is an, is an excellent example, I think, for uh, cities and for countries on, on how to link up the different aspects of, of, of water policy. And Singapore is able to apply this same kind of connected policymaking approach um, to, to other uh, policy areas related to sustainability. I wanted to mention also that this relationship between the city and, and its hinterland is, is really important when it comes to tracking performance. So if we think about tracking performance and sustainability across time, but also comparing across cities. You know, who should Singapore be benchmarking itself against and how? Um, for Singapore, of course, this is a critical issue because it, the country relies um, so much on, on imports of raw materials, of uh, um, processed goods, as well as for food, um, and still today for, for water, perhaps in the future also for green electricity. So in order to set uh, meaningful indicators um, and to use those indicators to identify appropriate policies, we need to define the, the boundary of the system carefully. 
if we only track indicators that, um, that follow the actions um, and the changes within the city itself, within the island state, um, then that could possibly lead to less attention being paid to these very important issues of interconnectivity with, with neighbors. Um, so I'd say, in fact, albeit at the risk of information overload, that we probably need lots of indicators. And we need indicators at these, at these different levels. So within the city and, and within the region as well. For Singapore, there's also an extra issue that it's a top maritime and an aviation hub. Um, and those sectors generate some important, uh, are important sources of emissions globally as well. Now, it wouldn't be appropriate to allocate those emissions to Singapore. But nevertheless, Singapore needs to engage and, and is engaging in international fora um, on how to reduce emissions in these important transport sectors. So they, I guess at the moment, um, you know, in amongst all the excellent uh, plans and initiatives here, it, it can actually be difficult to get a handle on the relative importance or contribution of these different policies and these different efforts in meeting uh, Singapore's key uh, carbon emissions goal. I mean, that information isn't readily available in, in the plans and in the policy documents and in the discussions. And my feeling is that more information about the relative contribution of these different policies would be very helpful for interested parties to focus their efforts in, in contributing to finding solutions um, and to support this kind of intersectoral connectivity. I think members of the public are aware of this too. I mean, in the discussions that we've held with our communities, we've done focus groups and, and interviews, um, people often signal that they want to see that policies are consistent and, and fair. Um, a couple of examples might, of that might be uh, in relation to the way that uh, electric vehicles are, are taxed and the kinds of incentives around uh, EV, or in the relative balance between protecting forested areas, existing ones, and planting new trees. So people want to see consistency um, across policies and they're, they're aware um, of, uh, they're aware of the, the sort of myriad of efforts and want to see how those fit together. I think it, it's clear both from the policymakers' point of view and from the point of view of stakeholders and the public in general, that what's needed on carbon emissions is a, a whole of nation effort. And so what is it that citizens need to do? I mean, it would be easier and, and in a sense fairer if we all had an individual carbon budget and in our Apple Watch, we could have a, an emissions tracker that would tell you just how you're doing uh, like your health tracker does. You'd then have a very clear idea of what personally you need to do uh, in terms of taking actions. But for now, that doesn't exist. And so it's quite difficult for people to know how to prioritize. I mean, there are carbon footprint apps, but including ones that are you know, tailored specifically to Singapore. But either they give a very generic response, or you have to put in such a level of detail that you're, you're, you, might, you might spend days on this, you know, trying to work out how much beef you eat, where it comes from, what form of transport uh, is used to bring it to Singapore. And there's another level too, which is that what is it that people can actually uh, exercise choice over? So if you have to travel by plane for work, should you be counting that into your personal carbon budget or not? 
And I think this uncertainty about how to prioritize, it's really come across in the focus groups and the interviews that, that we've done. And people will say to us, I really want to do my bit. Uh, just tell me what I need to do. And it remains a difficult question to answer. What we can do is, is separate out, characterize three different types of environmental actions. Some of those actions are what we might call private sphere actions. It's things like conservation, your consumption choices. And those are the ones that are most familiar to people. It could be simple things like turning the temperature up on your, on your air con, um, renting clothes rather than buying them, or um, more uh, deeper lifestyle choices like, like becoming a vegetarian. But that's not the end of environmental action. I mean, a second set of actions is around uh, the community level or the community sphere. That means talking to friends and family about climate change, perhaps uh, giving to a charity or being part of a local uh, community group which engages in coastal cleanup. And then there's a third sphere, and that's the, the public sphere. That's about engaging in public policies and supporting policies which are going to make a difference uh, in terms of carbon emissions and environmental uh, performance. That means things like writing to your MP, signing a petition, or blogging in your support for climate actions. Generally, people are focused on the first set, but really it could be the community and the public actions that make most of the difference. Say that when it comes to garnering support for uh, climate-friendly policies, Singapore is in a really strong position. People um, are, have a very high level of general trust in government. Um, they are very aware of climate change and they're concerned about it. Um, in all the discussions that we've had, we haven't found any evidence of climate denialism, people who say it's not happening um, or people are not responsible for it. People don't necessarily see the risk to themselves as individuals though. Um, and in this, they're entirely consistent with uh, what experts in Singapore say as well. So they see a global risk, but they don't see a personal risk. Um, I think what's going on there is that Singapore has an excellent track record of investing in infrastructure to ensure that the country runs smoothly. And people are expecting that the government will also achieve this uh, when it comes to climate change. It's what we might call a, a caretaker effect, that um, a child holding the hand of its parent doesn't bother to look left and right when crossing the road. They trust that somebody else is, is going to look after them. I'm not sure that's critical, because at the same time as people don't feel a personal fear, we do sense that people are ready to make commitments and to make changes in order uh, to support Singapore's uh, climate and environment goals. Perhaps the area in which uh, anxiety and uncertainty creep in, uh, and this might lead to opposition to policies, is around what the impacts of some of the transition uh, regulations and technological developments might be for, for individuals. Um, and perhaps the, the communications gap and the communications focus going forward will be to try to convey to people um, what the kinds of impacts, what policies are in the pipeline and what kinds of impacts they might have on people. And my feeling there is that the more transparency um, and the, uh, the further in advance 
people um, can have information about these new policies. The more um, researchers, uh, civil society organizations, the media can engage uh, with these policy proposals, analyze them, and then try to help people work out what the impacts for them um, as individuals will be. My feeling is that given that many of the solutions to reducing emissions aren't known yet, haven't even been invented yet, um, the more people we have um, engaged in that search, uh, the better. Um, and the transparency around uh, the policy future will uh, help to accelerate that process. Thanks very much. Thank you, Olivia, for that presentation. I'm intrigued by what you talked about, uh, cities being concentrators of innovation and solutioning, but also of risk. And also the point you made about Singapore not having the same administrative control over its hinterland. So how do we go about exerting leadership, both in a forward way, but also in an enabling leadership role, in what I think you termed off as, um, as a connecting policymaking role? We will come back to that after maybe after um, Javi's remarks. Javi, can, can we hand over the mic to you for your opening remarks? Yes, yes. Thank you, Christopher. And thank you, Olivia. So I'm, I'm going to just extend a little bit on what uh, Olivia has said. And, and my brief discussion will center around value of nature and the nature of value. So I'll start with the nature of value first. Um, how does one give value or credit to any given entity? If we take countries, for instance, how does one value countries comparatively or in each country's own terms? Uh, and there are many ways to measure uh, performance or valuation of country. For instance, a country might be valued for its uh, natural resource stock, in which case uh, Singapore would be valued very lowly, in other words, perform very, very poorly uh, as uh, compared to the rest of the world. But if a country is valued for the economic growth it has achieved, then Singapore will be valued very highly. Uh, amongst the post-colonial countries, uh, I, I guess Singapore will be valued the highest in this regard. So now I kind of segue into economic development. Um, economic development is precisely the definitive ethos of Singapore. The imperative which uh, arguably drives all other imperatives. Uh, if I put it differently, uh, we can even say that policies and decisions are invariably considered in relation to how this might affect economic development. Um, and, and, and we are talking about policies and decisions uh, across uh, sector. So it is not just uh, with regards to green issues or the environment, which is the topic of our discussion today. So uh, if we look at decisions surrounding green space specifically now and the natural environment, um, we can say that um, our highly successful imaging of Singapore as the Garden City, which uh, Christopher alluded to earlier, since our independence years, is driven perhaps less by the aesthetics of scenery in and of itself, than it is by how it can contribute to the overall attractiveness of Singapore as a self for investment. So in other words, yes, there is the aesthetics aspect, but it may not, and it probably isn't the key driving force of uh, having such a uh, ambitious vision, you know, of transforming a Singapore that is pretty much um, 
well, it's green, but not as green as now, you know, so the ambitious plan to turn it into a, a city of garden, garden of city. So, so that is ambitious and that drives not solely on the back of aesthetics or greenery. So it, this was an early example uh, from the 1960s. In, in, in fact, this driving imperative of economic development has persisted to this day and indeed uh, normalized into the logic of uh, Singaporeans. So, so in other words, across common conversations and uh, across topics, there is always this, um, you know, well, I wouldn't even call it afterthought. It is inserted right into this discussion. You know, what is this going to mean for, you know, economy or growth, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying that this is a wrong kind of thinking. Actually, on the contrary, I do believe that it is um, nothing really objectionable about placing economic development at the forefront of uh, multiple goals each country has to attain simultaneously. So, so there's nothing wrong, really. The, the problem with having this kind of thinking uh, when it comes to green uh, spaces or green issue is that it is not always quite straightforward to determine if um, any decision or any action that we make will push economic development or ironically actually end up pushing away economic development. But this is especially true when we attempt to think not of the immediate but of the long run. As it were, a lot of uh, actions that we do that have environmental impacts do not appear quite immediately. Right? Sometimes it takes decades. Sometimes it's not within our lifetime that we see it. So, so there, there is a, a specific problematic of, of you know, green space, uh, green policies, when it is injected into this overall logic of, okay, let's think about comic development, what is this going to mean for us? Um, Again, I must say that, again, there's nothing wrong with uh, having economic development as a driving imperative, which I think works for Singapore. So, and there's, there's nothing really without economy, I think. So, so that aside, um, I think what I want to add on is also that it's not to say that green policies uh, are often or always not clearly aiding economic development, well, especially if uh, such policies are successfully implemented and they indeed reap uh, intended objectives. So, you know, to give a very broad example, green technology would be, would be uh, something like this. So if we were to go uh, have a very comprehensive uh, uh, strategy or a nationwide strategy to push for green technology, then it is true that such a so-called green policy can uh, drive economic development. Again, caveat is that it has to be successful. Right, so extending on this line of thinking, the title of this session today, The City as Green Space, I, I feel it carries a additional significance of uh, seeing the green space of cities as sites of intervention to drive the economy. In other words, uh, you know, the, the city provides us with a, a think tank, a uh, urban laboratory in which we can locate problems and more importantly, suggest solutions to such problems. And, and Singapore, um, for better or for worse, is a perfect microcosm of such a, a, a site of city, uh, a site of urban intervention when it comes to green issues. So 
In other words, a, a green technology then would be an example of a commoditization of a commoditization of nature. So it is not unlike how you know we used to commoditize natural resources like minerals and forests. So this is all I'm going to say about uh, the uh, nature of value. Uh, let's let's a little bit about the value of nature. So in other words, how does one value nature economically or extra-economically? Um, I, I, I I'm not going to say a lot about this, but just to preface it by saying that it is unfortunately a, a question which is wrapped in often irreducible differences in one's ethics and outlook. And of course, one's ethics and outlooks are in turn tightly linked to one's uh, social economic class. So in other words, the question of how is nature value, how does one value nature, it really depends on who you're asking. Um, so so that, that, that provides an additional uh, complicating point. So it, it's, not, it's not inconceivable and it's not surprising at all that valuing nature for its own terms say the aesthetics of it, you know, which I mentioned earlier. Valuing nature for its own term loses often to the vulgar and highly simplified, you know, development versus conservation debate. So 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 this of course is very unfortunate. It's it's it is unfortunate because if a um a debate is often uh settled through um well, if, if one side often loses consistently for the lack of a common language with the other side, and not only that, uh, the losing side often, uh, or the losing side are forced to converse in the discourse of its opponents. I think that's not a very ideal situation because we then end up losing what could, what should have been saved. So, so I will leave it at that now. Maybe in the discussion, we can think about uh, uh, more examples to illustrate this point. So uh, not ideal situation when one side loses consistently for the lack of a common language. And the language that they have to adopt is the opponent's language. So the, the, the nature of value versus value of nature uh, language is different. Um, so but more importantly, actually, if we do not value nature for its own terms, it also means that environmental actions that are not immediately apparent to reap economic benefits for oneself or for one's country often fail, often falter because one cannot see why we are doing such a thing. There's no benefits, economic benefits to us. And as Olivia alluded to earlier, the kind of distant benefits that can be accrued through my actions, I cannot see it, right? And if I can see it, I have only very, very little uh, 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 benefits that it will come back to me. So it is that kind of thinking that is uh, almost part and parcel of the, the nature of value uh, uh, thinking that I've illustrated uh, earlier. So it is completely developed void of this uh, valuing nature for its own terms uh, uh, logics. So if I want to take an example, recycling behavior is a good example. And Singapore, I would say, has a very um, challenging track record and performance in, in this regard. Uh, partly, I guess, because of, of, of this whole idea of not being able to value nature for its own terms. So whatever we do, we have to see it in some concrete, pragmatic terms. And I think it's not always easy to see that. 
right? I'm not saying that recycling doesn't have that kind of a, a, a payback or, or, or benefits to us. It does actually, it's just not quite easy to see. So I, I think our uh, highlighted discussion here, uh, I think I'm, I still have one or two minutes, but that's fine. So I'll hand it over to Christopher. Thank you, Harvey. I'm really glad that you waded into the concepts of valuation and measurement of the environment and nature. Uh, given the huge challenge that outcomes in this space play out over a longer time frame, and you know, certainly beyond the immediate field of vision of policymakers and citizens with, with apparent pressing goals, something like the pandemic, uh, such as economic development, as you mentioned. Um, and, and maybe you know, before we open out the discussion to uh, the audience. I, I see some questions already coming in. Um, maybe we can focus on, on two areas where I think we'd like to, uh, I, I'd like to flesh out the discussion a little bit more. And let's stay with the uh, topic of, of measurement. Right? You know, if we don't measure it, um, we don't know what we, we, we know and we don't know. Right? So um, where do you see this, this whole measurement thing, this standard setting thing? Um, how does that play out um, in the next few years? Because I, I sense um, that, that the time is now, there is a gap um, and um, you know, maybe something needs to be done collectively. Uh, and maybe I can put it to you um, to discuss or um, talk about what you think um, Singapore's role in this process. So maybe, um, Olivia, would you like to kick off and, and, and your thoughts on, on that question? Sure. I think it's really helpful when um, coming up with an indicator set to have a very clear idea about what the, what the overarching policy objective is. Um, in the case of water, we've looked at that um, in terms of water security and then try to get a really multidimensional perspective on what water security means, um, including both uh, its uh, environmental aspects, its service quality aspects, um, as well as the risks associated with water from, from flooding. And so I wonder uh, whether that same kind of approach isn't uh, going to be useful across the board uh, in terms of uh, coming up with an, an indicator set for uh, other environmental issues. It's definitely more difficult when you have a very big and, and pretty much impossible to define concept like sustainability. Uh, I think that's, um, that's one of the big challenges and a lot of academic energy is devoted to trying to define it. I'm not sure how useful that is uh, for, for policymakers and, and other decision makers. It's easier also when we come to, uh, if, if we focus in on the mitigation part of, of climate change, and, and here we've got this universal, this global indicator, which is em carbon emissions or greenhouse uh, gas emissions. And all countries in the world are setting their goals in terms of that single indicator. Then the, so that's very useful. The challenge is how then um, to break that indicator down or to break that goal down into uh, sort of sector specific goals. Um, which, can, which can then be more easily translated in, into policy. Um, I, but having that sort of single global uh, indicator is, is a very useful one and is a very important part of um, the international effort. Um, and so Singapore has also very clearly set its goal for 2030 
in terms of the, the volume of, uh, of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, also just come back for a minute um, to this issue of, um, of, of scale and, and how you set the system boundary. Um, I think it's really important to deal with that and to deal with it transparently because otherwise you, uh, um, whether it's a government or a public agency or a, or a firm or a group of firms who are developing these indicators, um, almost instantly sort of triggers skepticism and distrust if people feel that the indicators have been selected on the basis of what's easiest for that agency or firm uh, to achieve. And people are very sensitive to greenwashing um, and there are lots of you know, bloggers and others out there who are going to help them to be sensitive to it um, as well. So being able to justify the selection of indicators that are used again in a transparent way, even ideally in involving um, stakeholders from outside your specific organization is a very uh, helpful way, I think, to, to, to build trust, um, you know, and importantly to, to be trustworthy. Uh, to deserve that people pay attention to these indicators. If you want, um, and we certainly do, want everybody to engage in, in trying to meet these objectives. Thanks. Um, Avi, any thoughts uh, on this um, on this matter? Uh, yes, so so this, it's always necessary to have a, a framework to, to compare for performance, uh, regardless what kind of performance we are talking about. I feel that one of the challenges is really how fine green do you want this framework to be? You know, if you if you make it too detailed, like too many sub indicators to to to, to track, uh, uh, multifarious kinds of of, of aspects to, to to look at, I think that has uh, two uh, negative uh, impacts. First, will discourage people from actually <laughs> trying to get on this framework of analysis, and, and second is it becomes something that is completely insensitive to the local context because it becomes so fine-grained and uh, the waiting process will be unclear as well. And invariably, uh, such framework will be pushed by you know, countries or consultancy firms which has enough power or enough uh, you know, uh, prestige to, to launch such a framework, a global framework, for instance. So, so that, that is a, 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 a consideration, I feel. And as opposed to well, if you go the other way and you make it so broad and so general when everyone is going to be on board, it really doesn't measure anything in any comparative sense at the end of the day, nor does it measure anything in and of itself. I think that that would be a danger too. So this balance, I think, is very hard to find. Uh, and for instance, from my perspective, I think Singapore loses out on most of the environmental performance indicators out there for reasons beyond our control. I think that would be something that uh, needs to be done. I, I feel maybe we should come up with our own performance indicators. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think we can stay with that, um, Harvey, with that thought. Um, and, and um, you know, it's, it, again, it's a topic that, that I, you know, really um, I'm quite passionate about. Uh, and it's this idea of, you know, who leads in this space, right? You talked about, um, you know, the, the difficulty of, of finding the right level, right? Mm -hmm. Finding the right context, but perhaps what we could do is, is find um, leaders, right? Um, different, you know, whether it's companies um, or community leaders um, or different countries focusing on, 
you know, specific areas where they have, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, I guess quite a lot of concentration, right, uh, in terms of their resources, uh, natural resources. Um, and all then strikes back to what Olivia was talking about. You know, we, we then move away from this caretaker um, uh, idea or mindset and, and, and then take ownership of the matter, right? Each of us then has agency. We, we, we lead uh, in that space. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think, yeah, like a, a coalition that you speak of would have more legitimacy, I, I feel, you know, all things being equal. So, so that perhaps should be uh, the, the way forward. Um, uh, but whether we could truly gather such a coalition, I, I'm not so sure how is it done or whether it's done before, uh, especially in the context of Singapore, you know, you, you have to include the voices of the people, of the business. The, you know, I, I'm not sure how that's, that actually plays out. And at the end of the day, you are still left with a product that may not be taken up by anyone else but yourself, in which case it, it, it defeats the purpose too. So, so I think it is the right way, but I think it's still a challenge ultimately. It's a solution that, that I can see is viable, but I'm not sure the success. Have you any thoughts uh, from the, um, the water perspective? I think you, you highlighted some uh, potential examples there uh, where there might be some, you know, kind of... Uh, gathering of, of, of this coalition I think what makes it really challenging in the sustainability area and what makes it perhaps a little a little easier in uh, reference to water is that it's not really clear what our policy objective is in sustainability generally mm-hmm. um, and uh, different organizations uh, public and, and private and civil society actually have you know, different goals in mind. And and maybe that's why we find it so difficult to agree on what the indicators are. So I want to come back to Harvey's uh, emphasis in in his initial remarks on uh, values and the importance of having that discussion um, about values. I think it could be a very fruitful one, albeit challenging, as as you said, uh, Harvey. Um, And there are examples of uh, let's say in, in, in river management or integrated water resource management in um, Australia comes to mind as a, a leading example of um, bringing together uh, stakeholders in, from multiple sectors in a forum and having a very explicit discussion about values upfront before you begin to s- discuss uh, you know, the costs and benefits of, of different policies. And I wonder whether a discussion of that kind um, can't be successful also uh, with regard to sustainability more generally. My feeling is that when people, and people do say in surveys that they're willing to give up a bit of economic growth for a better environment um, in Singapore as in uh, other Asian countries. Um, My feeling is that that's not just uh, social acceptability bias. They're not just saying that to please the interviewer, but because people actually all level, economic levels, do value uh, the environment. Um, And on that basis, um, it would both be so then useful and and, and interesting for businesses and for governments to engage to to understand what the right balance should be between um, economic development objectives and environmental objectives. Um, And perhaps there's more, perhaps that discussion about values would actually reveal more common 
than, um, than we, we might at first think. Cool. Thanks, Olivia. And, and maybe uh, I'll then uh, go to some of the audience questions now, uh, if I may. Um, and, and take up and pick up some of the uh, questions around uh, the environmental impact that we're having um, in terms of things like land reclamation. Um, we have three questions, anonymous questions, uh, about rising sea levels and uh, perhaps uh, Singapore's uh, reaction to that um, and the impact that might have on uh, our neighbours as well. Um, for example, um, you know, uh, getting sand from our neighbours Right? Uh, and the impact that might have on 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 um, on on those countries. Um, any thoughts on on that matter? Maybe Olivia first, and then Harvey. Sure, with pleasure. So I think um, with regard to rising sea levels, we've done quite a bit of uh, work discussing the nature of the perceived risk with members of the public, as well as with uh, experts, different sorts of experts. So uh, engineers, hydrologists, um, uh, as well as um, activists who are engaged in, uh, in this particular issue area. Um, when it comes to the uh, perceptions of the public with regard to sea level rise, um, in the short term, people seem fairly confident. This caretaker effect seems to predominate. The government's doing something, it's got a coastal adaptation study, it's beginning to invest uh, in coastal defenses in the places that have been identified as more at risk. In the long term, there is a, a very contrary view, which is that Singapore is at risk of submersion. So we heard quite, we had you know, many times in, in our interviews and our discussions, you know, Singapore is gonna be under the waves. I'm worried that Singapore is like Venice and it's going to, uh, you know, it's just not going to it, uh, be there anymore. And I think that um, characterization of, uh, of climate change um, in these dramatic terms, which people see a lot in the media, um, can uh, contribute to this. From the point of view of experts, the risk is one of uh, inundation. It's a flood risk. And you need to understand how then sea level rise uh, intersects with uh, weather phenomena, with storm events, with inter uh, interseasonal and interannual weather phenomena that are going to lead to a, what's called a, a surge, a coastal surge, which then leads to flooding. It's a very different idea about what the risk is, um, and I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how helpful it is that the the public has um, absorbed this even if it's very far off, this very dramatic perception of, of the risk of sea level rises as you know, Singapore under the waves. I think it probably helps the public to calibrate their support for the government response, which is to, to start investing in coastal defense infrastructure, um, if they can see it more as a flooding problem. And then you can look at um, the success of uh, Singapore's government agencies in dealing with flooding in inland areas, how that's been approached and how it's improved dramatically over time, despite uh, severe and extreme weather uh, storm events. Um, and that can help people then to understand how the actions that have been taken by the government on uh, coastal defense are an appropriate response to the nature of the risk. 
Um, okay, those are just some, some thoughts around sea level rise. Maybe I can leave Harvey to, to address other bits of the question, but happy to come back if, uh, if there are more, more that I should say on other aspects of it. Yeah, I, I think you, you've talked about the, um, the, the local impact, the, lo uh, the impact on uh, local citizens um, and their perceptions towards this, this um, very existential issue. Uh, but, but I also uh, would like um, you know, either of you uh, to deal with this, um, the impact on um, the, the, our neighbors. Right? Um, we do have to make uh, choices, um, but, but also I think going back to this whole idea of leadership, right? um, as we have done with, with respect to water, water uh, management and conservation, uh, maybe exporting or, or leading the way in terms of, of uh, helping um, this issue of sea level rise um, for our neighbors as well. Um, and then, of course, there's the question um, uh, being put about um, the impact of what we do with respect to civil um, uh, defense uh, for, for um, sea level rise um, on, um, on our neighbors, uh, you know, the, 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 the use of uh, a lot of sand uh, from, from our neighbors. So um, uh, if you could address some of that, that'd be great. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I'll, I'll try to, uh, this is... Uh... Uh, very uh, important questions which which are tied with uh, uh, multiple uh, actors and, and and policies and politics so so I, I'll give you a, a example you know we, we know that Singapore is a very uh, ferocious uh, 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 importer of sand for instance for reclamation and uh, and we have gone around our neighbors, you know, depleting their, their, their coastlines you know, in our effort to get more sand for reclamation. Of course, you might say that, of course, uh, this means that what we do have impacts on some places, which is correct. But I, I feel that there is a uh, additional element in the sense that these distant places, right? Not all of the people would be objectionable to our actions. So, so it really depends on, on whether the kind of economic benefits that uh, can be traced to selling of sand to our neighbor or uh, to us from our neighbors, how is it trickled down to the local community, for instance? So I I I believe that uh, the compensation if there ever was, would be very lopsided. And that gives rise to a, 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 a very persistent resentment uh, to the point that, you know, that there would have been bans. And of course, local government would think differently from the central government as well. We have all these uh, complicating political issues. At the end of the day, the, the, the bug still stops at us, of course. You know, we make the decision. We are the one who start the process. So, so th this is not a very easy question to answer and I have no good answer for it. Uh, so I will just leave aside this uh, stand for reclamation uh, bit. I want to go back to this, uh, fear, uh, this um, risk of uh, climate change and urban flooding, for instance. And, and, and here I'm going to say a little interesting anecdote from one of our research sites in, in Jakarta. Uh, this, you know, is part of what uh, um, uh, Christopher introduced earlier on our uh, research on citizen urban science and citizen well-being. So we went to a neighborhood. It's not really a, a low, a, a low class or, or, or dilapidated neighborhood. It was the average, perhaps uh, lower middle income district. And uh, one of the questions we asked would be, you know, what are the kinds of uh, uh, threats or urban insecurities you feel? And you know, 
uh, list and they choose issues. So, so basically what happens is that flooding was like number six or seven, you know, way down. But in that area, the, the, the Jakarta government actually raised that area as the highest risk for, 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 for flooding. So it's a red zone. So it is a zone that needs a lot of uh, intervention. So of course we have a lot of, uh, with the follow-up, we haven't done so yet. But we have a lot of uh, hypotheses to suggest. Well, one of the simplest reasons is that they have much bigger problems, immediate, clear, and present danger uh, to, to, to uh, be worried about. And indeed, um, job security was one, and mobility, how they travel, was the second. Of course, we can say, well, flooding actually affects that, but that's another question altogether. So, so that could be one. Um, the other question that we were thinking, uh, the other answer that we think of, of this anomaly is that I, I, I feel that the residents might think that if they agree with the government's assessment of their district as a red zone, they might be forced to move or forced to be evicted or forced to endure the inconvenience of so-called flood improvement uh, uh, works. So that could be a whole lot of reasons. So, so, so my point is to illustrate that really uh, there are so many uh, uh, different ways of looking at the same issues. And I think that's why I feel, especially for something as amorphous as, you know, environmental performance, uh, 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 it's, it's, it's not easy. It's very hard to wrap our heads around it because there's just too many missing elements or in, indeterminate elements. Olivia, anything to add? I'm, I'm happy to uh, just chime in on the second part of your question uh, about leadership. Um, you know, what's Singapore's role in, in the region in terms of uh, finding solutions, for example, to, to sea level rise. Mm. Um, and I, I think um, perhaps also applies to uh, water management of, of water generally, is that both the, the biggest contribution, but also the hardest thing to translate is governance. Um, Singapore is part of the reason why it's been able to achieve so much in its own uh, water security has been um, it's kind of a very joined up, far-sighted, um, consistent effort to deal with its water security challenge. Um, and the fact that there is a unified government with a clear policy goal um, and, and very clear uh, performance indicators for the, um, the public agencies involved has been very helpful in achieving that. Um, in addition, of course, to the technological advancement, um, and, and financial aspects of just sheer investment in the infrastructure. Um, but I think that's what uh, is most of interest to uh, other cities and, and states who come to Singapore to learn about its water policy. Mm. But at the same time, it's the most difficult thing for them to implement back home. Um, and I think the same thing could be said um, for sea level rise too. I think there's no doubt that Singapore's engineers, its designers, um, its, its economists have an enormous amount to contribute to uh, other cities, coastal cities in the region, um, in terms of uh, how to plan for infrastructure, how to design it for uh, multiple purposes. Um, but can that, um, can what makes that possible in Singapore, that kind of uh, future focused uh, government, and the, uh, and the link between the policy goal uh, and the availability of financing cannot be replicated uh, elsewhere. 
And so maybe um, the efforts on the uh, part of Singapore and the contribution is, is, is in both these things, right? Is, is mobilizing its experts to help uh, countries design solutions, but then to mobilize its like policy experts on how to achieve the, the sort of governance aspect that, that supports all of this. And maybe uh, if I can uh, challenge you a little bit further, uh, possibly introducing other actors too. Um, you know, what about the private sector? What about, um, you know, other players that, that might be um, sort of co-opted, um, brought into this coalition that Harvey was talking about um, to kind of act, not just in Singapore, obviously, but, but to um, uh, go into the, into the rest of the region where, you know, these issues are, are clearly quite pressing, uh, but they lack the resources, they lack the, uh, the planning capacity, um, the funding capacity. Uh, in that respect, um, and and you know we're, we're almost coming back to that that idea of of you know that leadership role, um, you know uh, both you know kind of in the in the doing, but also in the kind of the enabling, not just for ourselves but but for the rest of the region. And I, I wonder if um, you want to kind of touch on that. What kind of role does then um, can Singapore evolve rather than just that that you know. That, that front and center where the best at everything kind of thing uh, to, to actually just um, be a facilitator, you know, um, understanding the different contexts that might exist in, in our, in, in the region. Uh, that's for me to tackle again. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, uh, in, in, in other aspects, Singapore, I mean, does act as a, as a hub and the, um, the vibrancy of the universities, uh, I know we're at them, so we should be careful what we say about ourselves, but the, the activity at universities, um, and I know that we and, and, and of course, uh, Harvey's group are very much engaged with regional counterparts and partnering with, with other universities, um, creating this, this conversation. And um, we have much to learn too from uh, those who are living uh, and uh, experiencing the challenges that, that we're talking about. Um, I think uh, at, this, at the same time, um, in terms of uh, sort of Singapore's leadership role and bringing in other partners, um, a key group of people are, are property developers. Um, and, and in Singapore, that uh, relationship is, it works in, in one way. Um, we were just talking about, or Harvey was talking about this example from, from Jakarta. And in the greater Jakarta area, property developers um, play a, a role in some ways as sort of surrogate public agencies. They're providing public services, which we often expect governments to provide, um, like sanitation or um, putting in transport within very large property developments. So engaging with them, and um, both passing knowledge, uh, passing knowledge on to them and engaging with them as, as partners is, could be one way to sort of accelerate the adoption of um, you know, climate solutions and, and of regional exchange as well. And, and I guess, of course, there you know, will be Singapore uh, development companies which are active uh, in the region, ASEAN and beyond, um, who can provide a, a conduit for that as well. Are we anything to add, uh, perhaps in your experience in Jakarta, you know, uh, in terms of engaging uh, different stakeholders? Well, I, I suppose I can only speak generally and from my own personal experience, which is that I think 
we may have an image problem amongst our neighbors. So, so it, it, it boils down to this. I, I, I think where, whether justified or not, uh, the better ones would have a grudging respect for us, but most would just a little bit, a little bit I don't know how to phrase it in a in a in, in a correct way, uh, but you know what I mean. So so it is that sense of uh, like what you say uh, earlier, Christopher. Uh, you know we are best at everything. So so there is a uh, my mind a grain of truth in that in that Singaporeans might portray ourselves as that kind of person, right? That kind of maybe not know it all, but we are offering you good advice kind of, of persona, which may not necessarily sit well with our, our neighbours. Um, so, so that's what I sense. But the good news is that I feel it's fairly easy on a person-to-person basis to, to rebuild that kind of conversation to a, to a conversation that is more authentic and meaningful and helpful, you know, to both of us. Like Olivia said, we have much to learn, not least I mean, if we are cynical, they represent sites of economic opportunities as well. I mean, that's that's the, the, the long and short of it for us, as, at least. But, you know, throughout, through our work in, in, in uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, and, and the Philippines, there, there is this process of, of, of rebuilding, uh, no, not rebuilding, but uh, reorientating our conversation, you know, how we see each other. I think it's, it's necessary to do that. Uh, but like I said, it is not as difficult as it might seem. It's actually quite easy. So, so it, we do need to, to, to have that kind of mentality and hold that kind of mentality in truth, not in cynicism, not because I, I need to be like that so that you know, I can facilitate our works with these people. No, it doesn't work like that. You have to genuinely believe that yeah, th- we have to start somewhere and we have to start on an equal basis. I, I like the, um, the the optimism and the um, kind of the collaborative uh, spirit that uh, just, what we just said. Uh, maybe if we can then uh, now take uh, some uh, audience questions, and uh, what I'll do is bundle up questions from Eunice O and Jonathan Tan and an anonymous uh, questioner, um, and and really focus on the um, idea of um, nature conservation. This I think the point that you uh, touched on earlier, uh, Harvey about um, conservation and development, um, you know, the, the, the balance between the two. Um, and, and Jonathan asked in specific uh, terms, uh, you know, whether nature, conservation and development can be considered to be in harmony with each other rather than uh, having to kind of trade one off against the other. You know, is it possible? Can we do that? Um, and then, you know, kind of just that relationship between nature and the environment and the, the kind of the pure raw economic benefits. Um, so I think those are the two things that um, that uh, Eunice and, um, and and Jonathan were ask, kind of asking or hinting at uh, when they asked the question. Um, any thoughts about that? I mean, these these are probably high level questions, um, you know. And uh, uh, but but you know, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that's a perennial question and a highly important one, especially in a place like Singapore. But it is also because we are talking about Singapore here that I feel the solution is actually, uh, uh, you know, coming to us on its own. (laughs) In other words, what is the balance, whether there is or could be a balance between conservation and development? I think that the argument will resolve itself in the sense that the general population, at least in Singapore, would be gradually 
synthesize or have a very different kind of idea of what nature should be or what nature could be and what nature must do to themselves. I think I'm, I'm putting my head out there to forcing this. I think that, that the younger generation don't care much. Most of them don't uh, about physical aspect, the aesthetical aspect of it. If you talk about the, the action-based aspect of environmental behavior, I feel that, yeah, you know, maybe, but the newer generation, I, I feel they have no qualms about involving themselves, immersing themselves in, in, in a, a very uh, AI-created environment. And they like it. And we've seen research in other countries, in UK, for example, where people actually prefer that kind of experience because it is more immediate. You read the benefits in very clear, uncertain terms, although it's a very artificial term. But you see, this, this, this border between what is nature, what isn't nature, and what should you consider nature, and what are your uh, demands of nature, I think that has changed within a generation and a half. So, so that's my roundabout answer to a very complicated question. <laughs> Levia, any thoughts uh, on this point? Sure, I can uh, share a, a couple of thoughts. Harvey's comments were very interesting and took the discussion in a direction that was really unexpected. So I'm gonna, it's a little food for thought for me. Um, but in the meantime, maybe a more um, a sort of middle of the road uh, economics answer is that, that um, the, the trade-off between environmental quality and economic development depends what stage you're at in economic development. As a, as a country. And, and clearly there's a stage at which a country is based in manufacturing, especially um, uh, focusing on low cost manufacturing and that that tension between uh, environmental quality and economic development is particularly acute. When you get to, um, when the country is already high income, highly developed and is moving towards a service economy, it's actually relatively easy for the economy to keep on growing while in fact reducing its impact on, on the environment and improving um, both local and uh, broader environmental uh, performance. And I think that's where, um, that, that's certainly the level of development that Singapore finds itself at now. So that's, um, that doesn't mean that the environmental problems have gone away. They've shifted to other countries which are now at that lower, uh, that lower stage of, of development. But it does mean that from Singapore's point of view, it doesn't face that um, particularly difficult trade-off uh, which, which other countries find themselves in now. Um, there are a bunch of studies which have uh, tried to look at the relationship between uh, environmental regulation, environmental standards, um, and aspects of economic growth, and in particular, innovation. Um, and there's quite some debate about whether uh, tougher environmental regulation stimulates innovation or not. And there have been some big names engaging in this, um, in this debate. If you look at it from the, um, at the uh, level of the economy as a whole, it may not, it's not very easy to make that argument. If you look at it at the level of uh, a sector or a subsector, the introduction of regulation uh, does stimulate innovation because it poses a constraint for firms and firms look for a way around it, which means that if we, um, if we think, for example, about uh, stricter regulation on um, uh, air quality, on um, emissions of, of air pollutants, then it stimulates uh, that can 
stimulate innovation in scrubbers for power plants, um, which don't constrain the end, which don't constrain economic growth, which have a very limited impact on, on, on costs, um, and, uh, and at the same time improve environmental quality. When it comes to um, when it comes to carbon emissions um, and uh, regulation related to climate change, we're talking about such a, uh, a systemic change that uh, transition is going to happen across all areas of the economy. Um, and, and precisely because it is so uh, widespread, um, I think we can be more confident of the innovation impact, the positive innovation impact of, of stricter regulation. Um, and I don't think that will necessarily to come at the cost of uh, economic growth, uh, net economic growth. Of course, there will be distributional consequences and, and how to deal with those is gonna be part of the, uh, big part of the policy challenge. Thanks, Olivia. And um, maybe again, sticking with uh, this, this topic, um, uh, but but uh, also pulling uh, one of the questions that, uh, or a couple of questions that have been asked by by the audience. Um, you know, uh, this idea that um, you know, given the uh, the the challenge of this climate crisis, the urgency. Um, the question is is whether we should be considering more radical solutions. So. Um, that that actually even have an impact on on detracting from economic growth, right? um, and and uh, the, the example is is divesting immediately from fossil fuels, um, something like that. Is that going to be a spur for innovation? You know, just doing it means that um, we're forced to embrace new um, solutions uh, that that perhaps uh, a more um, a relaxed approach to, um, to, to change um, will, will not uh, foster. I'm happy to launch in. I'm, yeah. I, like this, I like this question a lot. Um, let's try something in the middle. The problem with very radical solutions, while they, seem, they might seem an appropriate response to the climate emergency, is that they create very high transaction costs. So everybody jumps to deal with this, the technologies don't have time to develop, they're higher cost than they would be. We don't have examples that we can then uh, replicate or scale up. So having a longer transition horizon um, will lower costs. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't start taking action. And I think that's what um, so much of the, of the commentary, the analysis around um, climate action is uh, emphasizes, brings to the fore, is that we don't have to do everything today, but we do have to start now. And what should we do? Well, a great way to find out what we should do is uh, to impose a carbon tax. And I don't know whether there are any specific questions uh, on this and whether we'll come to it later. But a carbon tax is an information revelation mechanism. We don't know how much it's going to cost to reduce emissions. Um, until we regulate and we start trying. And there are many examples from, um, from other environmental regulation efforts. Um, uh, a really striking example is regulation around acid rain. So in, in the US, uh, in, uh, air quality regulations were introduced to, uh, to tackle sulfur dioxide, uh, SOx and NOx, sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide. Um, 
the estimates of how much that was going to cost to firms to reduce their emissions turn out to be you know, three or four times what it actually cost firms to do so. So by introducing a policy like a carbon tax, we can start to reveal that information. We're not going to know how much it costs to take a climate action until we start to try. Um, and, and Singapore could be at the forefront of that um, by, uh, it's very much under discussion at the moment, um, how much the carbon tax should be, whether to, uh, when and, and how much to, to raise it. But that's one step that can be taken very soon and will trigger action, which will help to reveal those, those costs. And I don't think it's overly optimistic to expect that the impact on economic growth of keeping emissions below two degrees C over an 80 year time horizon um, will not be negative. Um, we'll wait with uh, you know, a lot of interest to see the uh, IPCC's report um, about working group three, which is looking at uh, sort of mitigation options um, and will include estimates of the impact on global economic growth of uh, the solutions that are currently available. That should come out, uh, I think, in the middle of the year. Okay, uh, we, we have another um, uh, question that I think follows on uh, quite nicely from our, our discussion um, here uh, about um, things like carbon taxes, and, and it relates to um, standards, um, green sustainability standards in the region. Uh, it's come from Jeffrey Tan and Anul Tio. Um, question, you know, about, um, again, Singapore's leadership role in terms of the sustainability efforts, the setting of those standards, um, you know, the carbon tax is an example of that. Right? Uh, you talked about um, the, the kind of the signaling effect um, uh, that, that a carbon tax might have, um, the revelation of, of the cost uh, of, onto the environment. Um, so how might we start our green sustainability uh, standards or form them, set them, um, and uh, do that in a way that is sensitive, uh, not just to our own context, but to that in the region. I think, um, Harvey, you talked about that earlier. Um, how do we, you know, kind of uh, consider the, all of that? I, I feel, um, you know, idea of a coalition is good, uh, but in general, the, 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 the driving logic behind a coalition is, is that you need a vehicle that is seen to be um, uh, not vested, right? Has high legitimacy and high respectability. So a coalition generally will give that impression, but it could be through some kind of organization, I don't know, ASEAN or some kind of supranational organization that drives this effort. I think that might help also. So that, that could, of course, evolve a coalition kind of idea in it, but it may not. So, so, so there are various ways to do it, but I think the, the key challenge here is to first, how do you uh, persuade, you know, neighbors or whoever that this was developed in uh, the most objective, fairest manner that we can think of? Yeah, and 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 and, and second, to to really in relation to that that first uh, uh, issue, is that we we have to be seen as Completely impartial, you know, to, to the, the whole process. I think that is 
fundamental to gaining legitimacy on any kinds of policies or framework that we develop and we hope other will take on. Because we are not, I don't know, China, USA. <laughs> you know, some other countries, they have other kind of uh, uh, arsenal behind them. But we have nothing except objectivity, truth, and sincerity is what I think it is. Olivia, any additional points? Um, I think the easiest area for Singapore to show leadership is amongst cities. And, and I know that that means that we're not fully taking into account you know, Singapore's status as a, um, a city state, but it does provide a natural group of comparators, including some you know, very high performing comparators for, for Singapore. Um, and I know that Singapore is already very much engaged in um, sort of cities networks, uh, global cities networks. Um, but amongst there, it's not, uh, not simply that you know, Singapore is, uh, is the leader and is trying to impress its, its learnings on others, but also extensive opportunities to learn from, from what other cities are doing. Um, and in some policy areas, other cities have done things which were, you know, very, which are very innovative and, and exceed what Singapore has, has so far managed to achieve. And I think that provides a, um, a, a useful uh, and a rather, a rather sort of cooperative, a collaborative context um, for Singapore to engage on the development of, of indicators. Thanks. Um, okay, so maybe uh, let's try and make a, a stab, uh, given that we're um, coming to the end of, of the, uh, the session, um, stab at a few more questions from the audience. Uh, I have one, uh, it's a combined question. Um, I combined it with um, uh, two questions, uh, one from Jillian Ko and uh, another from Nicole Lam. And um, really talking about the Green Plan. So Singapore's Green Plan 2030. And, and um, the question is, is, is what, um, is it ambitious enough? Uh, what excites you most about it? So the EV um, aspect of it, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think so, right? I can't be that. Uh, Harvey, you want to make a stab first? Yeah, yeah I, I, I think one of the most, uh, I find, how, how should I say, interesting, encouraging, yet I feel may not probably succeed. Uh, this 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 uh, push to grow uh, our own local agriculture, I think it's a neat idea, <laughs> and I, I like it. Uh, but I never thought that we could even I know it's an ambition. It's something to look forward to. But use the target is way way beyond possibility. Is what I think. So I I I I think you want to be aspirational, but not in a sense that you cannot even achieve it. I, Again, I'm putting my head up. Maybe I could be proven wrong, and I hope to be proven wrong. But uh, that kind of targets in a, a green plan, I think it's it's not aspirational. It becomes fictional and and more, almost fantastical, and, and it's not it's not realistic. I, I I feel so. So there must be some kind of adjustment to that uh, 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 regard. Um, I was not. I was expecting more on you know having some kind of uh, concrete policies and ideas with regards to uh, protecting our wildlife, you know, to, to, to mitigate uh, the increasing encounters of human and wildlife uh, interactions. I think that's something that I thought would be a, a, a increased phenomena. I don't think it says much about that. So, so it's something that I, I was a bit uh, expecting something, but it did not. 
Um, so something that wasn't there, but uh, you would have hoped uh, should yeah. have been in there. But, right. Uh, Olivia, what what um, what excites you most in the green plan, if anything? So it's it's an interesting combination of um, this, that aspirational target that that Harvey just spoke about, and then some targets which you know have been uh, which are already very familiar and have been achieved or almost already been achieved. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think in the, um, on the, the water side, um, it would have been exciting to see things going further. Um, although those targets in sort of international comparative terms are already, you know, very, very impressive. Yeah, possibly, um, and, and certainly what uh, you know, the sort of climate activist community would, um, would have looked for would have been in a more a more ambitious target on, on emissions um, or, you know, specifically um, a target for, for net zero. And in the last uh, so 12 or 18 months, um, countries have been, many countries have been coming out with uh, you know, ambitious targets for the achievement of, of net zero. Um, there are lots of issues around net zero as a, as a concept. Um, there are lots of uh, issues around whether these the countries that have committed to this are not just, you know, pulling pulling a, a, an aim out of thin air, which they hope they're never going to, nobody's ever going to check whether they achieved. Um, Singapore has a reputation for setting uh, realistic targets and going on to achieve them. Um, and I think perhaps the reason why Singapore hasn't set uh, a target for net zero is because it doesn't want to do so until there's a clear idea of how it gets there. Um, what would be great to see would be um, a bunch of uh, attendant policies, which would help us to see how Singapore is, is going to get there. And a bit more of that in the green plan alongside um, the, uh, alongside the excellent efforts in, in other areas, um, I think would have helped to, to provide the public and, and businesses with that sort of vision. Like what, what's, the, what's the roadmap to, to get there? Even if we're not sure, exactly when Singapore is going to get there. And related, I mean, do you think um, there's a bigger role for incentives? Um, we, we don't have very much by way of those. For example, the 30 by, uh, by 30 um, uh, goal um, is again, as you say, Harvey, um, quite aspirational. Um, you even said fantastical. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you, know, uh, you know, might it be assisted? Um, you know, it's a stretch target, but might it be helped uh, if we if we have a bit more incentives to kind of just drive that that um, that um, response along, mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, of course it, it helps a lot, and it also helps immensely if there is a, a, a that the actors involved in this are individual, right? Let's say the farmers, they are convinced of a, 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 a relatively sense of stability moving forward. I think that is something that is, that is a big disincentive, right? So, so they are not sure whether it could be viable to, 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 to farm or to fish in, in 10 years time. It's, it's not good enough to, to, to uh, you know, have a land lease that is, um, you know, constantly renewed and shorter and shorter leases. I think that's a disincentive because nobody wants to work with that kind of uncertainty. And indeed, we have seen, you know, farmlands being well moved 
uh, not taken away, but alternative sites were, were offered. Uh, of course, we can say since alternative sites are offered, you know, it's not, not a big deal, but it's a disruption to business and businessmen don't think of, of this as mere, uh, you know, inconvenience of moving. It is an uncertainty. So, so do you want to provide an environment of stability that really convinces people that you truly want this and you are committed to providing the resources available, necessary for people to actualize this uh, vision, this aspiration. Thanks, Abby. Any uh, thoughts from you, Olivia, at this point? Okay, great. Uh, let's, um, uh, again, we're coming to the end. So maybe I'll deal with one more question from the audience um, and um, ask uh, about uh, this, this um, idea of um, uh, domestic recycling rates uh, in Singapore, right? Um, is there something that we can do to um, boost that? Um, Olivia, you talked about, um, you know, kind of the moving to this um, zero or, or lower waste um, or that cyclical, uh, cyclical um, circular economy model. Um, what do you think? I mean, is, is there, is it possible for something to be um, introduced like, uh, you know, um, as what was said in this question, uh, a compulsory waste classification system, just to kind of encourage people, uh, send those signals? It's so hard. Um, and I've had a bunch of discussions with uh, NEA, um, talk about the, the efforts that they've made and the, 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 the range of sort of policies, nudges, and, and um, you know, things a little stronger than nudges, which have, have been considered. I know this is a really big challenge um, in Singapore. And um, I'm not sure one thing that would, would help for a start is to is to teach people how to recycle. And again, I know this is something that NEA has been has been doing, um, but uh, so much of what goes into the recycling bin doesn't get recycled um, because it hasn't been properly prepared or sorted. Um, and that then feeds into the impression that people have that stuff that goes in the recycle bin doesn't get recycled. So if that's gonna happen, why should I do it? Um, and it creates a, a very unhelpful spiral of expectations about what happens, um, what happens to things in the blue bin. Um, if, you, if you've spent a bit of time um, sort of recently in, in European countries, diligently kind of separating their waste. And you think, well, how do you, how do you do that? How do you change that mindset? You know, even when people have to go quite far out of their way to uh, put their recycles in a specific bin and they're, they're going to do it. Um, and uh, that there must be some level, a, a threshold at which the expectation about how others behave and how others expect me to behave then trigger a positive cycle in terms of, of, of recycling. Um, how, how Singapore can uh, increase the recycling rate to, to trigger that, um, I'm not 100% sure. And I know that lots of, lots of different things have been tried. And, and right now the policy is to give out uh, recycling bins to, to each household. Um, I wonder if putting recycling in the public domain getting people to take their rubbish to a place where they then have to sort it and put things in the bin in front of other people um, helps to create that expectation about the sort of social expectation uh, about recycling 
but comes with lots of other costs too. And you know, people are very motivated by convenience. So I, I, I can't guarantee that that would work either. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Unfortunately, we only have got a few minutes left. And as we draw this session to a close, I'm, I'm gonna ask, I'm actually gonna re, uh, re paraphrase a, a question that's come in from Edwin Chua and, and ask Olivia and Harvey to leave us uh, with their thoughts on this question. What, what is the one critical action that our future selves in 2030 will thank us for doing now in 2022 in building out this city as a resilient, thriving and sustainable green space? Olivia, would you like to have a go first? So it's a question about what we should do. Um, and I, I spoke in my remarks at the beginning about these sort of three different types of uh, environmental actions that, that individuals can take. My feeling is that the, it's the third type. It's those public sphere actions that are going to be the most important. And so if I have to pick one thing, um, it would be uh, supporting a carbon tax. Fantastic. Carbon tax. Coming out soon, I think. Harvey, your, your action point? Well, I think uh, I will pick a, a, a behavior or action that my future self will say that uh, there's no excuse you shouldn't have done it or you should not have done it. So I'll pick something that is easy and everyone can do, which is to reduce their meat uh, intake. So let's just reduce uh, meat intake uh, 10-15%. So uh, a day or two a week, you just abstain from meat. I think that's that's good enough. And you don't depend on the government, infrastructure, education level, none of this thing that involves in your personal decision to reduce meat intake. I think that will what, uh, that's what I would do. So uh, very good. Uh, we've got a suggestion at the, um, at the very public level, um, high level carbon tax, uh, and then one at a personal level, uh, an appeal by Harvey to uh, reduce uh, our, our individual meat consumption. Um, so thank you both. Um, and uh, we've got these two very fascinating, uh, somewhat um, uh, sort of challenging, I guess, in some cases, uh, uh, action points from our speakers. I I'm sorry we didn't get to all of the questions, uh, but rest assured, they are very much appreciated. IPS will note them and see if we can address the matters uh, raised in future work and discussions. Uh, I'd like to thank Olivia and Harvey for spending the time and their insights with us on the subject of uh, city as a green space. And to thank all of you, too, uh, for your contribution to today's discussion, uh, as well as in advance, if anyone wishes to take up our speakers' uh, actionable ideas to build up this city as a, as a green space. The uh, next final virtual forum begins shortly at 4 p.m. Uh, and is entitled Cities in the Digital Space. It's moderated by IPS Senior Research Fellow Dr. Carol Soon uh, and features Mr. Liu Chun Hong, CEO of IMDA, and Professor Carlo Ratti of, of MIT. See you then. <laughs>